Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest on this podcast ticks both of those boxes. Jan Gooding is one of the best known and highest regarded marketers in the UK. After leaving university, she began her illustrious career on a management training course at Selfridges before embarking on a 12-year career in advertising, starting in 1986 at Burkitt Weinreich Bryant and including a stint at agency Blue Door, which she co-founded. She moved client-side in 2004, first with BT, before moving to British Gas and then Aviva, where she spent 10 years, latterly as the company's first global inclusion director. After leaving last year, she now enjoys an archetypal portfolio career, spreading her time between gigs as chair of Panko and Stonewall and president of the MRS. If that wasn't enough, she also runs her own consultancy, Jericho Partners, which, according to LinkedIn, is committed to a better society and the common good. Welcome, Jan. Hello, Russell. How are you enjoying your plural career or portfolio career or whatever we're uh, describing it as? Well, yes, I know it's difficult to find the language without sounding pompous or uh, difficult to understand. I'm absolutely loving it because I worked towards this moment for the last five years and with Aviva's blessing because... Uh, I was born in 1959, so this year I turned 60, and it was always my aim to have the final decade of my career, because I hope and plan to work till I'm at least uh, 70, maybe beyond, who knows. Uh, I wanted to get back to what I loved so much when I worked in advertising, which was a range of different brands and problems and activities, because it was actually one of the best parts I found of my job in advertising, that I, I thought about different sectors, different brands, different problems. They all cross-fertilised. You took some time out after leaving Aviva. Why was that? Yes, unfortunately, uh, I'm one of those people that has, I think the terminology we use now, learnt to live with depression. Uh, it's something that was triggered when I had my first child. I had postnatal depression. And the doctor told me when I had my second child that it was 90% certain I would suffer a bout again. And I thought, no, I won't, because I know what I'm doing this time. And of course, I got it again. And what I found was it repeated in a cycle of three or four years, actually through my career. Happily, once I understood what it was and I would recognise the symptoms, I found a way of getting on top of it. So in my entire career, I think I only had, <clears throat> excuse me, three three weeks off work when I was at BT. But otherwise, I would recognise the symptoms, get to the doctor, get on the tablets, and no one actually noticed. But last year, I got caught out. And I've since discovered that um, post-menopause the symptoms are much more profound and as if that weren't bad enough, the medication doesn't work as well. So last year, I, it, it came round again and it came with tremendous speed. So I, I was much more ill than I, more quickly than I'd ever experienced before and then found it very difficult to get any relief from it in the way that I usually did. So I took a complete break. Aviva were fantastic about it. Um, Aviva actually quite advanced in terms of 
their attitude to mental health and, and well-being. Probably not surprisingly because they have a healthcare business, so they've always been alert to these issues. So I was very lucky to be employed by Aviva at the time. And I resolved, actually, because my plan had been to leave this year anyway, not to go back because it seemed a little bit messy. So in August, I decided formally to leave and I, I took till January this year to recover fully before getting back on the, the new business trail again. Is there any coping mechanisms that you learned during that time that you would recommend for anybody out there listening that might be suffering from depression, from mental health issues? I suppose I'd have to say everybody's different. So uh, I wouldn't want to say, well, I know what the prescription is. But I think the first and important thing is to is to recognise and respond to the symptoms, which I failed to do. So I look back and I regret that I didn't understand what was happening, even though I'd gone through it before. Don't resist going to the GP. Don't resist the medication, because although it took time, it did work. And then what I found incredibly helpful was I did have therapy twice a week. Um, I'm a great believer in cognitive behavioural therapies because you have a place where you go and talk about what you're, how you're feeling and, and you have somebody very understanding who's helping you cope with it. I think that's incredibly important because loving as your friends and family are, they're not experts. And also some of the feelings and thoughts that you have can be quite dark. And so you would prefer not to share those with your friends and family. So I think that's very important. And I discovered Audible. I mean, it may seem very odd, but uh, I walking was very important. I was lucky last year because it was an incredibly brilliant summer. And I was encouraged to take exercise. And I found actually the thing that helped me the most was walking for a long time and listening to audiobooks. Uh, my, sen- my sons introduced me to Audible and I found that listening to books was the thing that displaced the thoughts in my head. So even though I found it quite difficult to concentrate, so there was a lot of, you know, go back, go back that would that would go on. Uh, I found it utterly absorbing and um, just finding really good books that fitted with my mood. I listened to a lot of Margaret Atwood, which may sound odd because she can have quite a depressing (laughs) view on the world, but they're very, very brilliantly written and the characters were fantastic. And I just found a contentment uh, listening to Margaret Atwood as I marched about in the sunshine. And and I, I'm quite sure that that helped me to recover, in addition to all the other things, the medication and the, and the therapy. You've got to embrace everything that people suggest to you. And it's really, really hard because you don't have the energy and the confidence really to do things. And there's no instant fix. You don't go for a walk with a book and suddenly feel better. It happens very, very gradually. I'm very happy to hear that you are feeling better than you were. Thank you. Going right back to almost where it all began, I believe you grew up in the Bahamas. How did you find yourself in the Bahamas? Yes, it's wonderful. I I didn't find myself. I thought this was normal to live on this beautiful island with a... No, I, I went when I was uh, six months old. So my entire memory was um, of having been brought up in the Bahamas. My two sisters were born there. 
uh, Tessa, who works at the IPA, some people may may know. She actually is a Bahamian. You might not know that to look at her, and my younger sister too. No, I was born in Manchester, and my father went and got a job there when I was six months old. I went to school there till I was 12, and then was sent to a boarding school in England. And of course, it's quite a shock when you've been brought up on a small island to realise how big the world is and how tiny <laughs> that island is and also actually how incredibly lucky you are, which I didn't realise. I just thought the kind of weather that we had, the view of the beautiful sea, the lifestyle, bare feet, shorts, uh, was just as you do as a child, you just think that's what's normal. I look back on it and I realise that politically it was quite a a troubling time because the Bahamas became independent when I, in 1973, I think it was. And I went to a school of all white children. And I remember wondering why there were no black children there and and being reassured that, that actually they just couldn't afford to go there. There was a lot of poverty in, in the Bahamas. As you drove from one end of the island, you would you would see it. And I was very shocked to discover subsequently that actually there was a form of apartheid, that um, that local black Bahamian children were not able to go to the school that I went to. And so it's interesting how, on the one hand, as you say, one imagines this rather blissful childhood, which which it was. But I was always I was also living through very significant times of decolonization uh, and and I feel slightly ashamed that I wasn't more inquiring uh, as to what was going on around me. With adult eyes, I can look back and understand it much more clearly than I did at the time. Do you think it motivated you in any way to go on to do some of the kind of supporting and campaigning work around diversity and inclusion that has marked your career in many ways? It's a very interesting point, Russell. I'm not quite sure. I, I am an accidental activist. I think what is clear is that a career in advertising and marketing more broadly prepares you to be a campaigner. So one of the things that I'm fascinated by is what, why do people have the attitudes that they have and why do they behave in the way that they do and what can you do to, as it were, change their minds? And I think that's made me successful as a natural campaigner but but yes I think um, my growing consciousness if one cannot sound too uh, pompous about it around the inequalities in the world the unfairness in the world and actually the realization of how incredibly fortunate I have been has motivated me to make it different for other people and I believe very strongly that every individual can make a hell of a difference I've always felt that my whole life. I've felt whatever I could do in my sphere of influence, I was always going to try and do it. And I think if more of us just did our little bit, the world would be far more as we would like it to be. Um, it's led me to be more of a leader than I expected. And I look back and realise that's because a lot of people choose not to. Quite often I've done things in my life and and people have said to me, why would you do that? And and this phrase of career limiting and you don't want to be famous for this or that. Uh, people will see you as a troublemaker. They don't want 
activists on their board, for instance. I've been told that even in the last couple of months that I do need to realise that as chair of Stonewall, not all uh, non-executive roles will be open to me. No matter what people say about inclusion and diversity, they're open to that. They don't really want an activist. Um, And so I'm aware that in some ways it may have closed some doors for me, but I can't help being who I am uh, and I'm not a natural bystander. Uh, And I've done it over creative work and I've done it over the treatment of people. I don't know how you can just stand by. Once you know what you know, how can you not do something about it? Taking you back to the start of your career in the middle 80s in advertising, what what motivated you to choose that path? When I was working in Selfridges, I was incredibly unhappy. So sorry to say that for anyone who has anything to do with Selfridges today, but it was a very, very unhappy time in my life. My mother had died of cancer. My father had remarried very quickly and moved to live in South America. Uh, so I was with my sisters and brother in London, struggling actually simply to to survive really and find work. Um, and I took this job at Selfridges because they had a graduate scheme for general management. And I knew, having read economics, that I didn't want to be an economist and I didn't want to work in the city and in banking. So I thought I wanted to go, it was rather vague, I wanted to work in business. Um, so I was working at Selfridges, absolutely loathing it. I'm not a natural retailer or customer service person. But the, there was two weeks that I spent in their advertising department. And at the time, Selfridges were disbanding an in-house advertising department. And they had appointed an agency for the first time. It's all rather fascinating how these things go in swings and roundabouts of in-house and out-of-house. So there were art directors and copywriters who were literally putting their books together and unusually had quite a lot of time to spend with a graduate like me. And they showed me the guard books literally going back nearly a century and explained to me, and I could see in the guard book, how the strategy for the marketing of Selfridges had changed over time. It had begun as a great emporium and experience, almost a form of entertainment. Then the fashion side had become very dominant. And you could see through the guard book this battle of what was the Selfridges experience and when was it about dominating uh, the fashion industry and when was it a bigger experience than that. And I thought, gosh, how absolutely fascinating to have to make decisions like that. I could see that there were options and choices in terms of how a business went to market. And so actually, that's when I got the bug and I managed to get into Ted Bates and the rest was history, really. I couldn't believe I was being paid to do the job I was doing. I thought uh, the brand as a campfire around which the organisation gathers and makes sense of their proposition and and the decisions and the thought that goes into what ends up being an incredibly simple expression when well done actually is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I've always found that extremely fascinating. And um, I was hooked, really. I, I didn't I thought I was hooked into advertising, but I've discovered clearly evident by my career that actually it was it was marketing in the round and the role of brands in particular uh, that captivated me. Marketing Week meets sponsored by Salesforce. 
helping you to connect to your customers in a whole new way. We'll talk more about your career client side in a moment, but I just want you just to dwell on your early career, if you like, in advertising for a moment. I mean, you joined uh, Burkitt, Weinwright, Bryant, I think I said in 1986, I think it was, which to my mind, or at least to many people I speak to, was you know, you know, right at the heart of the excesses, the worst excesses, some would say, of the 80s Thatcher economic revolution. And and many would argue the boom time of advertising in the UK. Um, describe to me, perhaps good and bad, what, what the advertising industry was like to work in in those early days of your career. Well, I, su- I suppose where I would go to, first of all, with that question is about the sexism and misogyny uh, that I experienced that was really very shocking. And and again, as I look back on it, you you think, why didn't I do more? Why didn't I say more? A bit like my experience in the Bahamas. I, I think this is what people mean by wisdom. You know, through experience, you realise um, actually the uncomfortable feeling you had should have been more loudly expressed. But but I was very struck when I went to Ted Bates that there were no board directors at all who were women. Uh, and when I was at, at Burkitt's, there were no women on the board. I was excited by the fact that uh, they had planning. So funny to think, but planning was a new discipline back then. And so Intellectually and strategically, it was an interesting time. And Burkitt's was one of the, I think it started at the same time as uh, BBH. There was a whole, I think they were called the New Wave Agencies or something. And it was an expansion of full service. It was full service agencies with this extra discipline of planning. But But the sexism was quite brutal. And the racism too. Um, when I worked at, at Burkitt's, we had a, a black creative director, absolutely wonderful man, Ray Barrett. He's died now, sadly. Uh, I remember how awful it was. We worked on the Malibu brand and we came up with this idea. He wrote this script where there was a, a, a black man uh, driving a car and instead of going to the car wash, he went through a a waterfall in Jamaica with amazing music. And then the the scene ended with him with a wonderful woman uh, and, a, and, a, and a Malibu. And when we did the research, it came back that how could this man possibly have a car like that? And he must be a pimp. And I remember the mortification of sitting with Ray, getting this feedback. And of course, the inevitable happened that... that we came up with a different campaign and I and I remember feeling very disquieted about that at the time but one had no agency in those days to really stand up about anything to do with with racism or misogyny um the the sexism was dreadful I mean I was the first woman on the board I was much later onto the board than I should have been I got on the board because a wonderful male client of mine said why isn't Jan on the board? I want my business represented at the top table. And I realised that I was running 40% of the agency's business and yet I was by far the less least paid 
And I discovered later that I was the only member of the board who had no contribution made to my pension provision. I think because it was imagined that my husband's pension was going to provide for me. So these things were of substance. It wasn't just the everyday sexism of um, generally attitudes to women, which were so horrible. But it was material. It was material in pay. It was material in pension provision. Uh, and it was material in the kind of work that was being being done. I've used an example where racism was was involved, but equally there were depictions of women, you know, that one really wouldn't be comfortable with now. And it just seemed to be the norm. Do you think it was reflective of society at that time, a less enlightened time, or was that sexism and racism more acute within the advertising industry? I think, I think the idea of we're only reflecting society, we're not leading it, is a very poor excuse that has been used by marketing throughout. And I would and I would cite um, the attitude to advertising cigarettes. And I remember I actually worked on a, cig- a cigarette account special uh, filter international. And the argument at the time was, we're not causing people to smoke, we're just getting people to switch brands. At which point I go... Do we think advertising is powerful or don't we? And do we not accept the aggregated effect of all these brands promoting smoking must have something to do, may not be everything to do with it, but it is part of it. So there's a do we believe in advertising or we or don't we? But I actually think the recruitment of people into advertising agencies and the culture of advertising agencies was extraordinarily narrow and I don't think reflected society. So I think there are two different points. One, I think brands and advertising should lead and be bold and not necessarily just simply reflect uh, where we are. And secondly, I think their own cultures are extraordinarily narrow and they don't realise it. You mentioned there that advertising marketing has a responsibility to lead on societal issues. There's been many, or there are many, that criticise brand purpose, perhaps empty statements of purpose. I just wondered whether how you would respond to uh, to those criticisms in light of what you've yes, just said. Yes, I, I, um, I do feel quite strongly about this because organisational purpose is fantastically important. So companies and organisations need to have a sense of purpose and then that should flow through into the brand. But what what I dislike is when you see brands who start at the end of the, the inauthentic end of a brand purpose that is disconnected actually from what the organisation uh, is all about. And I think brands need to be very thoughtful and careful about not being disconnected from the reality of what's going on for their own staff um, and their own customers in the everyday service provision before they start making grandiose claims. I mean, we see it in the area of um, LGBT rights. Um, There's washing now, a bit like we talk about gates. We have wash of almost every aspect of uh, diversity and inclusion and, and culture. So I think... The leadership point, if, if, I would, um, if I would use an example of what I think good looks like, I think Nike's work around um, t- 
taking activism sport and its connection with activism which we which we know is a truth uh, sport can be a, an area where peace can break out because you get profound enemies playing sport and that can be the start of of, of reparation uh, or it can be where political statements are made and I think the way in which Nike used the the kneeling um, syndrome if I can call it the activism in America kneeling with the flag the way in which they took uh, Castor who has been through a hell of a lot as a intersex woman whether she should be allowed to run naturally or not I think Nike have been incredibly skillful and I've been very very moved by their advertising and I think it comes from a fine tradition of talking about just do it and almost being on the side of athletes that gives them the right to to have advertising like that um, but there are others that you could cite where which, where I feel it's very clumsy and I, I'm afraid the obvious one is um, is Gillette and the toxic ma- masculinity something that um, is an area that in some ways they have a right as a brand to speak because here you are, Gillette, the best a man can get. There's something rather clever about the best a man can be. So I can see how the strategic intellectual conversation went on. But when you then discover that reality is that women pay more for their raises than than men do, the whole thing just explodes. So you can't just be terribly clever in your comms and go... Because we're the brand that was the best the man can get, we can be the brand that's the best that man can be. You've got, you've actually got to do the hard work in the organisation and in what's happening for real in the marketplace, so you can stand up to, to scrutiny. So I would, I would encourage brands to go into this domain because I do think leadership is so important. At Stonewall, the alliances that we have with business is one of the most important success factors for us. You know, at the moment, trans people are literally under daily attack. And yet we find it's big business who would be the last people you would expect to be associated with anything controversial or risky, uh, reputationally or something that might alienate uh, their customer base. We find that big business are absolutely on side with us and that's a really powerful ally to have. So I want to encourage organisations and then how that is expressed through their brands to have a kind of activism uh, in what they do, to create a better society, to use their power and influence in a positive way. Because frankly, companies can get into rooms that we stonewall can't and certainly overseas where over 70 countries it's still illegal to be gay I mean how can it be illegal to be gay but it is declared illegal to be gay it's absolutely extraordinary business often get to speak to the key influencers in the, in those countries in a way that an activist never is going to so I think organizations should not underestimate their power and their influence and the opportunity to use that for good but you cannot be superficial about it because literally lives are at stake certainly in the lgbt arena lives are at stake we talked earlier about your reasons to move client side for want of a better way of putting it you began your career in marketing 
at BT and then moved on to British Gas, where I believe you found a mentor. Um, I think you've described him to us before as. Tell me about him and what impact he had on your career. Yes, I was incredibly lucky. And actually, it's a remark I often make that men have been incredibly helpful to me during my career. There are many feminists out there. Uh, and it's and it's one of the things that upsets me when straight white man is used as some sort of enemy or north star against which we must um, react. Because I have found in my career that generally uh, men have been much more helpful to me uh, than women have been. Chris Jansen was the managing director of Premier Energy at British Gas and he took me on by accident. I'd been brought in to do a short-term assignment, uh, in fact, by Amanda McKenzie, who left to go to Aviva. So he inherited me. I was not his choice. And we just hit it off. He was an incredibly accomplished, well-schooled marketer. He was ex-P&G and, and uh, British Airways. I learned a huge amount from him. And what I discovered from a professional point of view was my lack of enjoyment at BT was much more to do with the culture there and how incredibly difficult it was being in a business that was going backwards, as it were, and overstaffed and all the and and highly regulated to work with someone like him where you were on the front foot and you were you were growing a, a business. And we had the excitement of I, I had to oversee a price rise of 30 percent, which is not something I ever expected to do in my career. He reignited in me. Um, an idea that I could enjoy the client side. So I have a lot to thank him for from a professional point of view because uh, that set me off on the road to then joining Aviva where I was for, for 10 years. But I was additionally lucky because he was the man that I went to see when I fell in love with a woman very unexpectedly. I'd been married for 16 years I fell in love with a with a woman and my marriage was in great difficulty and I went to see him actually as you do to go and see your boss to explain that if you're a bit off in meetings or a bit distracted or not not quite firing on all cylinders it's because there's a difficulty at home and I didn't realize that I was coming out because for me the drama was that my marriage was in trouble and I mentioned to him that I'd fallen in love with a woman there was a bit of a raised eyebrow um of course I realized that that was uh, that was going to be surprising but I hadn't really thought through the risks that might be associated with saying that to someone and I was lucky because he was absolutely fantastic and in fact in a way became an even more profound supporter and mentor to me subsequently I think he felt it was a very brave thing to have done uh, and so I owe Chris, a huge amount, both from a professional point of view and also from a personal point of view, because he looked after me at a moment of high vulnerability and the vulnerability was both professional and personal in a way that I didn't realise. Uh, I learned subsequently, I'm afraid, through other people's reactions, which were less generous, to be more circumspect. So by the time I went and joined Aviva, uh, I effectively went back in the closet, which I've I've talked about before. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to have actually had almost that side-by-side -side comparison of being out and then going back in. 
and experiencing how much it affects your performance because we talk a lot and we have a lot of evidence and data to show that people perform better when they're themselves, whether it's from being able to be open about their mental health uh, through to being uh, through to being gay. There are many things that people are hiding in life and I think we discover that the more open we're able to be and the more accepting we are of each other and respectful of difference, the happier we all uh, are. I actually had the experience of the suppression on my performance when I went back into the closet uh, and I found it was not sustainable. So after a year, I effectively came out for the second time uh, when I was a viva and it was provoked by my annual appraisal with... Uh, Amanda McKenzie, most brilliant uh, boss. And um, she said to me, your performance has been absolutely fantastic, but you've completely lost your sparkle. She knew me from before. And actually, Amanda knew that I was gay. I'd, I'd come out to her, but it wasn't generally known in the team. And I knew exactly what she meant. And I knew why it was and I just decided this is ridiculous. So the very next day uh, that we happened to have an off-site team meeting and right at the end of the day when there was this roundup of, you know, what have you got out of the day and what are you going to go back and do, I came out. And I remember we were only, I think there were only nine of us there. Uh, two people wept because they were so moved and there was a general round of applause. And it was a very affirming thing to do and I remember Amanda just beaming at me because she didn't know I was going to do it and I see that day and that moment as an absolute watershed for me of um, commitment to being who I was not hiding anymore and being prepared to take whatever danger and discomfort came with it and you have to remember that between coming out at British Gas and joining Aviva, one of the reasons that I went back in the closet was that Ian Bainham was murdered in Trafalgar Square and Ian Bainham's sister happened to be living with and the lodger of my lover at the time, uh, Lucy Ash. And so that was a very close homophobic murder, very close to me. I remember Lucy ringing me and saying it's a terrible thing Jenny's brother's been beaten up in Trafalgar Square and then the horror as it unfolded, he was in a severe coma and then he died. And it had a huge effect on me because I thought, my goodness, there are people who want to kill other people in London, in Trafalgar Square, who've done nothing more than get off a bus and walk in a way that other people thought was a bit gay, was a bit camp, and they they were insulting to him and he he made some remarks back and they beat him to death. Two women and a man and a man actually. Um I'll say in broad daylight because it was it was it was the evening. It was about ten thirty at night, I think. And that scared me. So when I came out again, it was a much more knowing, a much more experienced, a much more aware Um, And I have determined ever since to be, to choose to be courageous um, and to choose to speak up and not only for myself, but for 
for other people. There were no high-profile lesbians at Aviva at all. And actually, it was rather amusing. There was a kind of explosion of of women coming out uh, after I did. So I know that by being visible, by being vocal, I'm not only helping myself, which I profoundly do, I know that it also helps other people to be similarly courageous. Do you think there's more that companies can do still to offer a supportive environment for people to be themselves, to be their best selves and perform better? Is there lacking there in terms of inclusivity? I think the two most important institutions are schools and organisations. Our schools are incredibly important because that is where actually children are a blank sheet and I think you can actually educate people about difference. You can educate children to be accepting and it not only affects um, how they whether they are LGBT or not, um, it, it actually just affects an atmosphere of respect. So I think schools are incredibly important and organisations as the employers of people are incredibly important. The culture of organisations, I think, is what's driving societal change. Uh, again, it's completely unexpected. I think it, it's extraordinary, the idea, as I've said before, that organisations that we think of as being rather staid and unadventurous and risk-averse should actually be the places that are are so courageous, partly because they're inclined to comply with the law and there's been a lot of changes in the law over the last 30 years and so organisations don't want to get into trouble so they tend to formalise, create, you know, they invest in training, uh, they upgrade their policies and so big organisations are perhaps more alert to some of the uh, massive advances that have been made on equality. But I think they are also very thoughtful about their culture. Uh, and you can be critical, and I was certainly critical of Aviva when I was an inclusion director. There was a lot of work to be done. But but actually organisations that are inclined to make the effort get the benefit, which is, I believe, if I need to make the case, um, people perform better. So I literally think there's productivity for free waiting to be picked up. If you have an inclusive culture, people will be more themselves. They'll be happier at work. They will produce more for you. And secondly, in terms of the ultimate prize, the more diverse your organisation is, the more intelligent you're going to be about your potential marketplace. And I think these days when there isn't the time anymore to say, we want to market to LGBT people. Let's spend six months researching what they think and testing out propositions and then going to market when we've eventually got it right. These days, it's all about getting out there. It's all about beta testing. The digital economy means you can't hang around for six months getting it right. So what you need is emotional empathy within your organisation and within your people so that as you're evolving and developing and innovating, you've got diversity within your organisation who are going to help you do things in an intelligent way. And it's not enough to have diversity in your organisation. You've got to have the culture where people speak up. 
to share and give you the advantage of their different lived experiences. And you also have to have inclusive leaderships. And perhaps this is some of the things that, that will be difficult. Certainly, I have to work on it, who are good at listening. So you have to have a different kind of leadership, which is less about you being commanding and controlling and the decider and the all powerful, but actually is about nurturing this idea of, of getting many voices helping to solve and resolve issues uh, and actually finding a way of coming to a conclusion, which I think the leader still has to do, where not everyone will be satisfied, but you actually feel you've looked at something in the round and you and you are going to make a collective decision about how you move forward, which will, by definition, be more successful in the market because you've, you've thought it all through. You have a wide angle view of the marketing industry now um, being involved in so many different things what would be what would you identify as your biggest bugbear the thing that winds you up most about marketing in 2019 i think on the client side uh, and i have spoken about this there has been a complacency which is coming home to roost now around how social media works, how programmatic buying works, um, and a mesmerised obsession with uh, data that is questionable in terms of effectiveness. That I think, when I say it's coming home to roost, I think clients have been guilty of narrower and narrower cast and forgetting about the power of broadcast and they are now discovering that quite apart from the waste that is going on. As you know, clients hate hate waste. So figures that are not accurate is very disquieting. And I think there are a lot of reputational issues uh, in social media at the moment. So I think on the client side, there's been a naivety about the uh, the country uh, of digital and and social media and i think there's going to be some fast growing up happening on the on the agency marketing services side my greatest frustration is its fragmentation uh, and i'm sure i sound like an old dinosaur because i started in full service and i feel very fortunate i feel my success in my career is because i had such a completely rounded education about marketing not just about ads you know we did the first thing you had to do was mystery shopping um, and you had your media colleagues in the room when you were discussing things you had a you had a genuinely agnostic attitude as in terms of what was the business problem and how could the brand help uh, solve it I'm frustrated that marketing services people have forgotten the power of the total view and and the and the big networks have made that terrible mistake which clients often make which is on paper it looks like they've got it all but it never really integrates and and i long for the marketing services side to reinvent themselves and get back to the knitting of of total solutions if i can use that terminology and really working out how they can be properly remunerated without all the smoke and mirrors that's going on that has led us, I think, down quite a bad path. You mentioned at the beginning that 
you still have many years of your career ahead of you. But if I could just ask I hope you, so. if I could just ask you for a moment to reflect, though, and identify first for me what the biggest regret in your career to date has been. I think perhaps my biggest regret is, and I can only say this with hindsight, and I did have postnatal depression at the time, but I wish when I had been fired when I was on maternity leave that I'd really taken that battle on. Um, as I say, I had postnatal depression. I was married to the, to the chairman, which, which didn't help. But that was a very, very important moment for the agency as well as for me. And the reason I regret it is when I look back on it, I know that I would have I would have done the agency good. And I loved the agency and I loved being on the board. And I know that if I had not simply acquiesced to that and said, no, this is this is not what's going to happen. And I insist on returning and I am on the board. Uh, they would have done better with me on the board. I say that in all in all arrogance. Uh, I think they made a terrible mistake in getting rid of me. So it would have been very good for me to assert myself and it would have been much better for the health and success of that business if I had returned to it. So I do I do regret that. This was for the benefit of people listening, Burkitt, Weinreich, Bryant yes. that you're referring to. Yes, I was married to Hugh Burkitt, uh, who is a great feminist and obviously, uh, and I still have a fantastic relationship with him he he has been a huge mentor to me and advisor and I think he was caught out because he was my husband I think it was quite difficult for him to stand up against this suggestion when he, he was talking to his wife so I think he was in a bit of a bind so I let him off a little bit for that <laughs> um, but it but it was a mistake and he's been generous enough to say that it was a mistake and I think that agency would have been more successful if they'd kept me on that board. And it would have been good for me and my psyche and it would have been good for women and it would have been a powerful a powerful thing and powerful moment of change because it was an agency that very much had a boys culture. And that was the moment and I and I missed it. I would love to have that time. I would love to have that time again. That having been said, because that happened, I started my own agency, Blue Door. I had a much better client list and I earned a lot more money than Burkitt's three years later. And so you could say it was also the making of me that that happened. But it was not good for my confidence um, and it was not good for the agency. And who knows how my career would have turned out. Obviously, it would have been completely differently. But it meant it meant that I had to go and create the organisation in which I could work and lead in the way that I wanted to. And I had a wonderful um, partner in Cathy Aldridge who had been the planning director at Ligus Delaney in the, in the great days. And she had moved to what was now Diageo, but then was United Distill, and she was working uh, on the Gordon's Gin brand and Johnny Walker. So we started our consultancy with the Gordon's Gin brand as our first uh, account within 18 months we had Unilever I mean it was the most I mean when I look back on it the most happy time the most enjoyable work and entirely on my own terms 
So it's kind of awful, isn't it, that as a woman in those days, and certainly uh, she didn't have children, so she didn't do it because she had children. That was the circumstance I found myself in. Kathy did it because she was fed up of the misogyny. So Kathy doesn't have children, but we as women created the organisation which we wanted to to work in. Seems like an uplifting point to finish on today, Jan. Thank you very much for taking time to share your stories of your career with us. Thank you. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meet, sponsored by Salesforce and produced by Bauer Creative, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Tim O'Donoghue. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can listen to previous episodes with the likes of Byron Sharp, Sil Seller, and Nicola Mendelssohn. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.